0: Because of its spines, the thistle has been misrepresented, called vicious, and although God made it too, even the Bible says it is malicious.
1: Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm guest editor, Srikanth Reddy. This week, C.M. Burroughs and I dive into the little-known world of Margaret Danner. Born in 1915, Danner was a contemporary of Gwendolyn Brooks and Langston Hughes. She knew them personally, but she never achieved the recognition she deserved in her lifetime. For Burroughs, archival research is a form of faith. I asked her if she'd take us through Danner's hair-down letters and share what it was like to newly discover a poet from her lineage as a black woman writing in America today. We'll hear one of C.M.'s poems, God letter from her newest book, *Master Suffering, as well as two poems from Margaret Danner's own work. Danner wrote about many things, the civil rights movement, African art, gender, class and society. But the question of religious faith was an important thread throughout her life and work. In the early 1960s, Danner converted to Baha'i, a relatively new world religion devoted to the unity of all faiths. Today, we have the pleasure of also hearing from the musical director at the Baha'i Temple just outside Chicago, Van Gilmer. Here's Burroughs and Me talking about Margaret Danner, Black faith, and race in America today.
2: I came to Margaret Danner with complete ignorance. She is part of my lineage as a Black female poet, right? but I'd never heard of her before. And I am interested in bringing to the fore those poets whose names have been a bit lost.
1: I mean, that's uh, so much like what we're trying to do for Margaret Danner, and it's exciting. I feel like we're at a time when Black poets from the 20th century are entering into the canon more fully you know, every intro poetry class teaches, you know, Gwendolyn Brooks or Langston Hughes and so Mm -hmm. on. But there's a lot that's kind of buried also when you kind of promote certain writers.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a good word for it, buried. You know, buried by what people think is, is the canon now, but it's ever evolving. And it's high time with young black poets It's like time for us to bring the folks behind us forward into social media and all that's modern that's happening now contemporary that's allowing the work to be in front of more
1: people and you uh, it's exciting that it would be younger black poets doing that kind of like history like that (laughs) archaeology but it's also must feel like a responsibility and a thing that you know might take you away from your own writing or you know well yeah
2: so responsibility I mean so it is a kind of responsibility but it's one where I feel the charge for it and not the labor of it there's a way that I think about archive searching as a romantic thing to do as a writer right I don't, I keep, my mind keeps going back to this word faith. And so I have a certain kind of faith in Black writing and Black canonical inclusion that causes me to persist in learning about authors who are not in the public eye.
1: Well, we're going to be talking about faith today because faith is a large part of Danner's story and your story I mean as a writer too but before we get there I'd love to hear what it was like for you to like encounter this black woman poet you know writing in mid-century you know um, died 50 years ago who you'd never heard of before (laughs) and and just do a deep dive into her papers right before you even read the poetry I guess is that true or
2: Yes, actually, it's true.
1: It's a funny way to get to know a poet, right? Like It's like you get to know them as a person first and then as a writer.
2: Yes, because as I opened the archive, the first thing I came into contact with were her letters, her correspondences between herself and other poets. There were poets that I'd heard of before, so she was a great friend with uh, Robert Hayden. She calls him Bob in the letters. And so getting to know her was a process of... Making up her, the landscape of her friendships as well. And that made her more intimate.
1: When I was in the looking through those papers, I kept seeing these letters to Bob. And I was like, who's Bob? Mm-hmm. Who's Bob? Because it doesn't <laughs> say Robert Hayden in the letter. And so you have to kind of map yourself onto like, who's Cal? Who's Bob? Who's, you know? And,
2: yeah, you know. yeah.
1: So uh, at what point did you realize that Bob was Robert Hayden, the celebrated? Black American poet whose poem, Those Winter Sundays, is like one of the most clicked on poems in the Poetry Foundation website. And
2: Yes, absolutely. Those Winter Sundays is one of my favorite poems.
0: I ...my good shoes as well. What did I know? What did I know of love's austere and lonely offices?
2: It was later in the letters when I found out Bob was Robert Hayden, and I was blown away. By thinking, "Oh my gosh, this poet who I know about is actually friends with her, and it makes the world smaller in a way to think about these friendships that were happening right between between black artists. Margaret Walker is mentioned in one of these letters to Robert Hayden, and so there's a there's a bit of world building that happens in those letters
1: yeah yeah and and you see the kind of How the sausage is made, too, of American poetry, you know, uh, she's asking him for, Margaret Danner is asking Robert Hayden for favors again and again in in the letters, right? Yeah.
2: Yeah, she needs, you know, jobs. There's one letter where she's asking him for advice, and she doesn't in that letter betray what she needs advice for, but, you know, it's an urgent request.
1: Yeah, and I love how she kind of complains about her typewriter while she's typing the letters. And <laughs> you see the typewriter get all wonky. And and so then you so you kind of came to her, it sounds like, through this kind of... I mean, we think of poetry as very intimate, but there's something even more intimate about getting to know someone by reading their letters. It must feel, like, in, in, invasive in a way, right? It,
2: it might be invasive, um, but... It's so exciting. You know, it's easy to find a a copy of her book, Down of a Thistle, and, well, maybe not easy, but... Uh,
1: CM and I have the only two copies in the (laughs) Chicagoland area. Yeah.
2: You can find it. You can read her verse. And, you know, I can say, okay, I know the work of Margaret Danner, but now with these letters, I, in some ways, know the mind of Margaret Danner very deeply, She was also writing to a publicist, and in this she was describing problems with getting her name in the world as a Chicago poet, problems with something as relatable as procrastination. She describes what she does when she procrastinates, you know, uh, reading detective stories was one thing that she did when she (laughs) wasn't writing. So it's something I do. It's beautiful to be able to read the normal day-to-day muck of people's lives. (laughs) They aren't just a poet. They're a poet within my lineage with whom I have some things in common. And this is where sort of Black femininity comes in. I could relate to her as another woman, as a Black woman in the poetry world. It just felt a bit familial,
1: You call it a hair down letter. Is that what you call it? What's a hair down letter?
2: She calls it. So Margaret, in one of her letters to the businessman, publisher Hoyt Fuller, says that she hopes he'll forgive her hair down letter, which (laughs) in that context means it's a more casual letter. She's not talking about business or anything like that. It's a very friendly, uh, somewhat confessional letter.
1: And you're, I mean, a letter writer, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, the God letters in Master Suffering are so powerful and they're letters that you're never going to get a response to. You wrote a letter to Margaret Danner in this issue of Poetry Magazine that you're not going to get a response to. But um, what does it mean? I mean, to write letters now to a poet from the 1950s or to God. I'm thinking about this question of faith that you,
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know. I came upon the notion of using the epistolary form when I began to have conversations with fellow poets about religion and or faith, because I haven't always been a believer myself. So understanding others' belief systems is really interesting to me. And it occurred to me to write these letters, uh, these epistolary poems to them in response to what I had learned.
1: You say, I haven't always been a believer myself, and that's an interesting verb tense to use. <laughs> um, what, what was your experience of religion growing up and how has that changed?
2: I, I realized my response implies that I am a believer now. Yeah. That <laughs> is up for debate. Um, So I can't, even though I went to church, I went to Baptist church, I went to African Methodist Episcopal church, I can't recall having a fevered response of knowledge of God. Hmm. You know, I I remember the ritual of God, but I, I don't think that's the same thing. As I wrote the Palms and Master Suffering God letter, I really had a chance to question, accuse, and level with God, however he, she, it exists, right? The center of master suffering is the death of my younger sister from sclerosing cholangitis, uh, which resulted in her rejecting a liver transplant. And so around that, around her sickness, illness, and that, that was years of illness, We went to church, we prayed, we counseled with our pastor. And I think then I believed or I really needed to believe there was something out there, right? Because I needed my sister to get better. And of course, she didn't. When she had her transplant, she had one really amazing, happy, normal year of life. And then her body rejected it which then starts to get into the mechanics of the thing, right? But it also goes back to this notion that, well, if prayer didn't work and science didn't work, then where does that leave me? I was in no place and full of grief. God Letter. Everybody is doing trigger warnings now, so to whom it may concern, I hated God when my sister died. I didn't know it was coming, but we were at the hospital in a private room for family, and our pastor was there, the one who baptized me, and he said, Let us pray. And I kept my eyes open to watch everybody, but listened. And when he said, sometimes God has to take back his angels, I was smart enough to know I was 15, that he was saying she was gone or going. And I loathed him so much. He didn't see the look on my face, that blazing anger, blank heart, F you forever look. But then my parents told me we were going to take her off life support. And I died then. And after they took away the machines, we had solitude, family time, the five of us, mom, dad, me, my brother, and my sister. Holding her body, she was warm. She wasn't conscious, but she could hear us, I know it. Then they opened the door for other family to come, say goodbye, and I was hugging her back in her bed, my face against her face, my tears wetting her cheek. It was flush and her waving hair. I wanted to hold her forever I was hurting but felt selfish like the other people wanted to say goodbye to so I let go and her head kind of tilted to the side and I straightened it so was a mess then goodbye goodbye we left there to clean the house for mourners to come.
1: You're kind of born into the church, or you know, mm-hmm, um, sure. but you never had like a kind of a conversion experience, to, you know. <laughs> yeah. And this poem is kind of like about uncon and the opposite of a conversion experience, right? Of feeling hate. Oh yeah,
2: you know? yeah. This is this is the exit door right here, you know. <laughs> and it's it's that part in the poem where her head tilted, and I had to I had to physically fix it that destroys me in the poem every time. And the memory of it is acute. It's that moment where I say, okay, enough, I'm done, you know, in essence. And I I wasn't baptized till I was maybe 10 or 11 maybe, but you're right in that I was born into the church and it was maybe an expectation that I would be a believer. And it was certainly not a welcome notion when I confessed myself to be then atheist,
1: so you kind of came out to your family. You, oh yeah.
2: yeah, totally.
1: Wow. <laughs> so, th- so you're coming from a place of real, I mean, familial and like kind of historical involvement with organized religion. Yes. Would you read uh, also? Uh, because I'm thinking about about how Margaret Danner was born into a Christian Science family and had an experience of conversion, very different from your unconversion, Or, what, you, know, <laughs> um, you dug up a very interesting document in her papers that I was wondering if you could share with us.
2: So Margaret Danner does express a great love for the Baha'i faith in her letters. And there's one she wrote to a friend in the 60s that reads, I would like to declare my faith in Baha'i and to join with others of this mind. At a time when the US is more in need than ever before of right thinking among its citizens, I seek to join with those who are actively demonstrating right thinking all over the world. And, you know, I see this as probably being a more than natural response to racism and the civil rights movement. And she was part of the offices of the Poetry Foundation, the Poetry Magazine at the time. So she was managing a lot. I bet that it was really lovely to come home to people who believed wellness and friendship for everyone.
1: So there's so much to to think about here, Baha'i in the 60s and civil rights and black religion in that period. But can you say a little more about Baha'i? Uh, did you know about Baha'i before you kind of came across this letter? Like No
2: I knew nothing about Baha'i. I did not know <laughs> that there was a Baha'i center, like in Wilmette County, Illinois. Since I've found out about Baha'i, other poets, including Pulitzer Prize winning author Tyamba Jess has told me you have to go. It's beautiful.
1: You totally have to go. Yeah, it is beautiful. (laughs) (laughs) I used to go when I was a kid uh, with my parents. Really? We're South Asian. Uh, My parents are Hindu. And they used used to take me to the Hindu temple when I was growing up. But Indians love (laughs) Baha'i because it's like this, it's this syncretic, world religion from the late 1900s it comes out of Iran that believes in the unity of all religions mm-hmm. and, and so they recognize Jesus Christ and the Buddha and Muhammad and uh, the prophets of every religion as being coequal with one another and you know it's the perfect immigrant religion, because my my parents (laughs) could say, you know, look, this this is a place where we can be Hindu and accepted and around other people of other faiths.
2: Right. Yes. I like that word accepted. Yeah. Because I think that was what Margaret Danner was hoping for. Having Baha'i and having a friend like Robert Hayden in the faith made it feel like a really gracious home for her is the sense I get. From the letters.
1: W- one thing about black religion in the 60s for someone like me who knows nothing about it <laughs> is that I kind of had viewed it as being kind of like bifurcated, you know, between the kind of Christian civil rights kind of movement of Martin Luther King and others and the kind of black Islam of. Malcolm X and Nation of Islam and just wondering how you see because you're like uh, Margaret Danner's best friend after reading all (laughs) her letters you know her choice her decision to convert to Baha'i at this divided time
2: so it occurs to me that it just might have been a safe space she didn't have to choose right King or Malcolm X necessarily Yes, safe space with people who look like her and people who
1: don't. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that uh, there's a poem of Danner's called uh, Through the Varied Patterned Lace that kind of speaks to those desires. I am
2: exalted. I am exalted to recognize his grace shimmering through the varied patterned lace. There is God's good in every man, whether Whether Russian, Russian, French, French,
3: Italian, Italian, or America, and glowing so in you. Oh, Ibo, Yoruba, Zulu, Congolese, Fan, I look at you and feel it flooding me. Divinity must win the race. It will not be halted. We are all small sons of one clan. I am exalted. My name is Van Gilmer, and I'm the music director for the Baha'i House of Worship for the North American continent. That period, the early 60s, when Margaret Diner became familiar with the Baha'i faith, it was a a tumultuous time. I was arrested many times as I would go downtown and, and sit in at lunch counters or stand in line to get in a theater. And it was immediately after that period that I discovered the Baha'i Faith.
1: Van Gilmer grew up attending a Baptist church in Greensboro,
3: North Carolina. Everything was segregated in America. As a black boy and a black young man, I only went into white world, as we would call it, which would be the, the city. you go downtown and say, Mommy, I'm thirsty. And you'd have to go to a place that had fountains, that we, uh, would have to be a place we could go in. So it was in this environment that four black freshmen went downtown and sat at the Woolworths lunch counter. I was a senior in high school. I, I knew two of them, That's the two of them were from Greensboro. In January of
1: 1963, Van first learned about the Baha'i religion, when a neighbor asked if he would sing at a World Religion Day gathering. He was 19 years old.
3: I had to think about whether I would join that group or not. Joining that group meant I leave a large black community that worships together. I now go to a home because mostly Baha'i communities were meeting in homes, white people's homes, unbelievable. I hadn't even been allowed to go into white people's homes. I was afraid to even go into the white neighborhood. And I discovered this faith which says, all men are created equal. You know, it's, it's like everybody says, but here I could see it. I could not just hear about it. I could see different people, different levels of education, different colors, worshiping together. Thank you, Lord. Oh so, Writing a poem like Through the Varied patterned Lace, to me, feels like celebrating our, our differences and being together exalts us.
1: Thanks so much to Van Gilmer for speaking with us and to the Bahá'í House of Worship Choir. Now, back to my conversation with C.M. Burroughs.
2: I do love this poem. It's beautiful, right?
1: Very beautiful. It feels like, um, it, like liturgical, like you could read it at a Baha'i service, right? Absolutely. Um, th- this is a hard question, and um, I don't know if it has an answer, but how does it feel to read this poem uh, today as a Black poet in America after Charlottesville with its language of exaltation and unity
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's hard to reconcile this poem and the lines divinity must win the race it will not be halted with what's happening in two really black people today and On one hand, I suppose well one must believe this. If you can count in anything, it must be in your faith and in God because nothing else is helping, right? And on the other hand, I mire myself in the tragedies and traumas that keep happening. And I don't see a way out except for America to make some existential changes that actually matter to its people.
1: And does that feel like, um, like we're at a place where religion again becomes part of the conversation, or do you feel like religion, like Margaret Danner's Baha'i faith, like Leroy Jones's conversion to becoming Amiri Baraka, like many other poets of the 1960s, felt faith at the center of their literary practice? Right. Do you feel that that's happening now and and also for you as a writer you know i mean how is it happening for you now as someone who writes god letters and you know
2: oh chiku <laughs> <laughs> what a question <laughs> oh my gosh okay
1: all right i mean you're talking to other poets about religion i right? am yeah.
2: and how dare you bring that up <laughs> <laughs> so in the time we're talking about in in margaret danner's time i think where else could one have gone but to church? And where else could one go but to like-minded people who could be considered and or are family? And so I understand her exaltedness, right, in this very safe communal space. And I can say that now. People might ask, well, where else can I find solace, right? But in my faith, in the faith that things will get better, or the faith that I can carry this too. Now, my own engagement with the God letters has been so personal to the death of my sister that, I mean, it's a strange thing to think about building a personal faith, or religion, I should say, because I, I really don't think about God too unattached from my sister. I think both bodies, body of religion, body of my sister, were quite intertwined at the time. I remember a time in high school and college when I couldn't stand to be near conversations about religion because I felt so betrayed. And I would get up and walk away if one was happening near me because it would make me angry. And now, of course, I'm perfectly happy to hear about the practices of one religion or another from a friend and what really what buoys them in times of great difficulty.
1: Yeah, it feels to me like in the God letters, you're writing letters to God, but you're also kind of writing letters to other black poets about religion. And it's like you're, kind of forming your own church in a way, or a, your, a, your own kind of um, religious study group, right? Um, is, is that a way that you see disorganized religion? <laughs> right. I don't know why um, I want to uh,
2: shake my finger at you right now, but I feel that you're asking me these questions that make me think about things that I have not considered before. <laughs> and so to think about this collection of epistolary poems and master suffering as a kind of faith building is interesting um i i know that part of me resists it and another part wants to say of course that's what i'm doing or of course i'm talking myself toward it which is pretty scary very scary in fact
1: Just wait until we go to the Baha'i Temple. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Did my parents put you up to this?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're Baha'i too now. I I didn't tell you. I knew it. So we have a recording of a poem from a poetry reading that uh, Margaret Danner gave in Memphis, Tennessee. And you'll hear her uh, kind of patter and introductory remarks leading up to the reading of the poem itself.
0: This is a thistle. Now, uh, uh, it is a real thistle. Uh, I became involved uh, with the thistle because as I walked into a room of a very important person and I was there to impress him and be my most beautiful best, the man looked at me and under his breath he said, Thistle. Well, how could I relate to that? He immediately covered it up. I said, thistle? And he tried to carry it away, you see. But I was intrigued. And so that I began doing research on the thistle. I doubt that this man who said thistle was thinking of this exotic flower when he saw me. shooting, sure but um, <laughs> thistle. Protea accorded reverence in Africa, their home. They wear their mini-sized, shaped, and shaded down as fluffy tiaras, and people everywhere who can afford them import them in ice-cooled, first-class compartments to dress and bless their offices and home, but there are many thistles who, having had no royal passage, were seized and thrown into the holes, stumping over humps of humiliation, degradation, making spines of their many lumps in order to protect their crowns. And the stonier the path the thornier, the thistle. Until now, nearly everyone is so busy avoiding the thorns that few get near enough to enjoy the down.
1: Oh Lord, raise me up. I
2: love hearing her enthusiasm and the expression of her voice, that's gorgeous. And, I mean, I immediately think of this as a very contemporary poem insofar as how the Black body is treated in America. As I read this, I see her working through the complications of how she sees the survival of the Black body. So this making spines of their many lumps in order to protect their crowns. And then there's this notion about ability and wealth with, and people everywhere, who can afford them, right? Import them. And, you know, that strikes me as a great metaphor for the transatlantic slave trade.
1: It's like if leaves of grass is an image for American citizenry in Walt Whitman's, you know, Song of Myself, then the thistle might be Margaret Danner's uh, kind of emblem for Black yeah, absolutely. identity.
2: I mean, yeah. we've got thistles are accorded reverence in Africa, comma, their home, period. And we've got this intentional marking of homeland here. And this notion of reverence gosh, it'd be great if Blackness were afforded the same reverence in America. And the the poem ends sweetly Hmm. because it says everyone is so busy avoiding the thorns that few get near enough to enjoy the down. And so she's persistent in saying there is beauty here. There is greatness here. If only you slow down
0: to see it. ...of a is as soft as the petal
1: of a rose. Siem, thanks so much. That was really fun. Thanks, Chiku. It was. A big thanks to Siem Burroughs, Van Gilmer, Joyce Litoff, the Bahá'í House of Worship Choir, and Kathleen Feeney at the University of Chicago Archive for making this episode possible. You can read a series of Margaret Danner's poems, as well as C.M. Bro's Epistolary Dialogue with Danner, in the March 2022 issue of Poetry, in print and online. The poem you heard today is from Burroughs' most recent collection, Master Suffering, published by Tuplo Press. If you're not yet a subscriber to Poetry Magazine, there's a special rate for podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a full year of the magazine For $20, that's 11 book-length issues for just $20. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcastoffer to subscribe. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcastoffer. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir, Alabaster de Plume, John McCowan, Rob Mazurek, Irreversible Entanglements, and the Baha'i House of Worship Choir. Okay, that's it. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening.